trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And once again, we are off and running, ready to revel in wrong think. Actually, we're going to be spending some time today talking about why it is so essential that we have wrong thinkers. People like you and me. We're not troublemakers, a little misunderstood perhaps, but uh, no, there's there's a principle behind our wrong think, and I'm going to be sharing some thoughts on that coming up. Do want to mention the program today is brought to you in part by Alta Bank. I appreciate them being a sponsor of the Brian Hyde Show. So you're hearing talk of resistance. Let me walk that back. You've been hearing talk of resistance a lot over the last four years, right? About the time that uh, Trump was elected, I believe uh, that became kind of an official thing. Hashtag resistance, and it took a lot of different forms. Now, I'm not one who's necessarily opposed to resistance, but what does principled resistance to tyranny look like? Because, see, I have this hunch that it's, it's not burning or looting or spreading lies or threatening everybody around you. Some people think it is, but to me that just sounds a lot like aggression. And fraud. So I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm thinking you shouldn't have to abandon your principles in order to stand up for them. Does that even make sense? Yeah. Anyway, if you want to see what principled resistance to tyranny looks like, we have some very powerful examples around us, but it's uncomfortable in, in many cases for people to acknowledge. And I've got a great article here from John Miltimore explaining that if you want to see what principled resistance is like, look at the gym owners in New Jersey who are being fined $15,000 a day for refusing to comply with their state's lockdown order. And they're not backing down. And, and if, if that seems, you know, well, that's just childish or that's, that's just, you know, knee-jerk on their part. I don't know, man. Uh, you know, someone who is willing to experience harm or to suffer in order to stand up for their beliefs. I mean, there's always the possibility they could be wrong, but you, you at least have to admit, this isn't just, you know, going through the motions or paying lip service to something. That's somebody who actually has conviction. And I tend to take those people a little more seriously than the ones who are just hooting and calling from the sidelines. They aren't even in the game. They're just, you know, bystanders. What are they risking? Was it Daryl on the opposite? Sitting on your biscuit, never having to risk it. <laughs> So here's what John Miltimore says about these gym owners in New Jersey. He says nearly 100,000 U.S. businesses on Yelp failed to survive the coronavirus pandemic and the ensuing government lockdowns, which we can agree. It was not, it was not the virus. It was the government response to the virus that, uh, that is causing so much financial hardship and heartache. Ian Smith, the co-owner of Attilus Gym, was determined not to be one of them. The New Jersey entrepreneur has defied Governor Phil Murphy's lockdown orders for months now. On a typical day, hundreds of people go to the gym to exercise. Smith estimates 84,000 people have worked out at the facility since the state resumed its lockdown in May. 
Now, for gym patrons, Smith's Lockdown Defiance has brought benefits. They get to keep body, mind, and soul fit in what's been a stressful and strange year. And get this, Smith says not a single COVID-19 case has been traced to his facility. Now, for Smith and co-owner Frank Trimbetti, that decision has had some consequences. Smith recently told Fox News, Governor Murphy, Murphy has thrown everything he possibly could to shut us down. He arrested my partner and I. Give, he's given us over 60 citations, some of them criminal. He fines us $15,497.76 per day for every day we're in operation. Our fines are totaling over $1.2 million, but he says every day, Frank and I open our gym. Now, the prospect of facing more than a million dollars in fines and, and criminal charges would be enough to cow most business owners into compliance, but not Smith. Following his interview with Fox, he posted a short video to Twitter showing people working out in his facility and had a simple message for Governor Murphy. No science, no shutdown. It's a pretty neat, uh, it's a neat video. I would encourage you to watch it, although I'm going to tell you somebody uh, gives a good New Jersey salute to the governor right at the end. Someone working out in the gym gives him a big F you, governor. But basically, Ian just stands there with these signs and just one by one, you know, you read them, he drops it, pulls out the next one and explains why they keep doing what they're doing. It's powerful. I don't think it's just a publicity stunt. I think this is someone who is legitimately trying to do what they think are right is right, and they're doing so at a considerable risk. Now, the clip had already been viewed more than 7.7 million times on Twitter just as of uh, two days ago. John Miltimore says Smith is hardly the only business owner to defy lockdown orders. He says, as I wrote before Thanksgiving, Americans of all stripes, business owners, religious observers, even political officials are embracing the tradition of civil disobedience and peaceful resistance to lockdowns that have been shown to be largely ineffective at slowing the transmission of the virus. From city officials in Beverly Hills to restaurants in Kentucky to gym owners in Buffalo, New York, Americans have begun to stand up to lockdown orders that have ravaged small businesses and caused the first rise in extreme global poverty in decades. Miltimore says the pandemic has been one of the most trying and terrible chapters in American history. More than 300,000 Americans have died of or with the virus, according to official statistics. And attempts to mitigate the spread of the virus have resulted in widespread economic destruction and mental health deterioration. But, he says, the silver lining is that Americans are witnessing a renaissance of civil disobedience against government overreach. From seatbelt laws to compulsory schooling to smoking bans on private property and beyond, in recent decades, Americans have obediently acquiesced to laws that have violated individual freedom in the pursuit of an alleged collective good. But these lockdowns, he says, have reminded Americans of the true nature of government. Like the late uh, Walter Williams once observed, the essence of government is force, and most often that force is used to accomplish evil ends. Miltimore says, by complying with laws that seem reasonable in pursuit of a common good, Americans had largely forgotten that government is an evil. Now, a necessary one, perhaps, but one that should be limited and shackled at every turn to prevent it from devolving into tyranny. This is precisely why the American founders created a fractured system of government that decentralized power and was fortified with numerous checks and balances. Thomas Jefferson wrote in Notes on the State of Virginia, an elective despotism was not the government we fought for, but one in which the powers of government should be so divided and balanced among the several bodies of the, of, 
of magistracy as that no one could transcend their legal limits without being effectually checked and restrained by the others. Now, as strange as it may sound today, John Miltimore says the the, uh, reason of government isn't to create a better world, but the protection of liberty. Because it's only through the protection of liberty that a better world will be created. Now, to be sure, coronavirus is a serious and deadly threat, but it's one individuals must manage, not central planners. Again, Dr. Walter Williams once said, substituting democratic decision-making for what should be private decision-making is nothing less than tyranny dressed up. Depriving healthy individuals of the ability to work or do commerce is tyranny, even if it's wearing a dress. Ian Smith sees that, and his defiance against Governor Murphy, whose clumsy attempts to slow the virus have only resulted in New Jersey having the highest COVID-19 mortality rate in America, is an act of heroism. Hopefully his act of civil disobedience will inspire others to remember man's true nature and natural rights. And he ends with a quote from Henry David Thoreau, the American poet, abolitionist, and essayist, I was not born to be forced. I will breathe after my own fashion. Now, I know the, the sounding note of, of resistance can, can quickly turn into some pretty mindless stuff, as we have seen with some of the BLM riots and some of the Antifa demonstrations and just, just some of the, the, the sheer craziness and, and mental imbalance that has been on display over the last four years. But I maintain there is a time and there's a place for principled resistance. I know Ammon Bundy is kind of a lightning rod, and for a lot of people, you know, he, he strikes the wrong nerve. And, and I'm not trying to say that uh, everybody's wrong and only Ammon is right, but I think most of those who, who most fiercely hate him are misguided in the sense that uh, they really don't see what he is standing up to, and they haven't been on the receiving end of tyranny. Ammon has. No one can ever accuse him of uh, not knowing of what he speaks. He has been in the belly of the beast, spent the better part of two years being punished without ever having been convicted of a crime. So my advice is this. People who resist, cut them some slack, try to understand what it is that they're actually standing for. And if you're going to be one of those who resist, try to focus on being the kind of person that others could turn to when they are distressed and looking for answers. And they can trust what you have to say. They have confidence in your character that gives power to your words. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's see, where to go next? I want to talk about sore losers, right? We've heard a lot of this in the last uh, few weeks, right? Ever since the election, I'm holding that in quotation marks, the election, <laughs> the, the, the quadrennial um, reassurance ritual. I don't know. I didn't have a lot of faith in elections before. What, what faith I've had is, is rapidly waning, but uh, hey, you know, it's, it's as, as hard as it may be for some people to accept not everybody is fixated just on a candidate or a personality. Is oh, this is where we must go. It's 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 that uh, tribal mindset. Ugh, my team always right. Your team always wrong. 
Most of us uh, who don't like politics or who only participated to the extent that we're just trying to use our influence as wisely as we can, we're not in it for the candidates. And, and I say this sincerely because, I mean, you put a good person up there, even Ron Paul, who I think is probably one of the most respectable candidates of my lifetime. I would not count on him to be the savior of everything, and, and, and he is infallible. I want him to follow the rules just like anybody else. Because it's the principles that matter. That's what directs my vote. That's what, uh, for, for most of the people I know who have heartburn over what's happening with this current election and its outcome, it's the fact that there are principles that are being rejected or that are not being followed. Much more of a concern over that than over the fact that a particular candidate did not get elected. And I think we're in some pretty dangerous territory. I got a, got a text from a friend yesterday who said, man, I'm listening to an interview of uh, three retired generals who are talking about, well, you know, this is serious enough. The president ought to invoke the Insurrection Act and uh, declare martial law and start arresting co-conspirators, people in the media, politicians. And look, I think that there may be, there may have been criminal misconduct in, on the part of some people involving, uh, you know, involved in this election. I think it's possible. I don't know it for a fact. Look, I haven't handled the evidence. Neither have you. But it's, it's certainly within the realm of possibility. And I think it's something that deserves a fair and thorough hearing. Because if there is legitimacy to those claims or to the appearance of what, what seems to be fraud or corruption, that needs to be rooted out. We're actually going to talk about something that uh, that happened uh, um, on Monday that uh, much of the press isn't talking about, and that is uh, something interesting happened with America's electors. This is an article from uh, Andrea Widberg, who says, It's pretty easy to knock Republicans. She says, So often they're the type who go along to get along. They don't make waves. They concede. They willingly, willingly negotiate. They back down. If they're really bad, they become never Trumps. And sometimes, she says, they surprise us. Here's why. On Monday, seven states, in addition to having their apparently victorious Democratic Democrat electors cast their votes for president, seven states also authorized Republican electors to cast their votes to make a record. It was wonderful. And she says, I'm sure other better writers than I will write about what happened on Monday. But she says, here's my say. Monday was the day when the states designated their electors to cast the state's votes for president. By day's end... Creepy confused, Joe Biden had 306 electoral votes. Now, Democrats are ecstatic, believing they now have a signed, sealed, and delivered White House, but they don't. Here's why. The Supreme Court currently appears to be a craven institution. Many think the court is sending a message saying that if Democratic Senate candidates win in Georgia, giving both the White House and Congress to the Democrats, it will rubber stamp everything the Democrats do. In this way, the justices hope to prevent, to prevent court packing that will diminish their prestige and cachet. Still, she says, we might be surprised. Additionally, more evidence keeps emerging of massive fraud. The audit of the Antrim Dom Dominion machines shows that they were programmed for fraud and almost certainly used as programmed. And there are also affidavits signed under penalty of perjury from eyewitnesses and expert witnesses from across America about fraud and the indicia of fraud. There's the infamous video from Georgia, and there may be more videos emerging, although that's hopeful guessing on her part. 
And then there's the redoubtable Sidney Powell, who says she has documentary evidence that votes were sent overseas and manipulated there. This, she says, could trigger Trump's 2018 executive order imposing sanctions if there was foreign interference in an election. Now, at that time, the EO, that executive order, appeared to be a response to the Russia collusion hoax. But she says Trump may have been looking ahead, not backward. The director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe, will be issuing his report December 18th. If there really is provable massive fraud or foreign interference, the election cannot stand. Now, to prepare for these possibilities, either judicial courage or such overwhelming fraud that the election cannot stand, seven states did something unusual and courageous. Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, Nevada, and New Mexico all selected two slates of electors. One slate accepts a Democratic victory, but the other slate anticipates a turnaround, whether judicial or because of such overwhelming proof of fraud or foreign interference, that Biden's victory must fail. In Michigan, there was even some extra drama. The state police attempted to block the Republican electors from entering the Capitol, but those efforts were foiled. She says, according to Reuters, if states select different slates of electors, the House and Senate can simply ignore one of those slates. However, if the House and Senate select different slates from those states, it's entirely unclear what happens next, especially since the electoral count, which cannot trump the Constitution, is muddled. Here's a quote from Gateway Pundit. Academics have sketched out several scenarios under one. Pence, as president of the Senate, could throw out both sets of a state's electors. Another contemplates that the House of Representatives would end up choosing between Biden and Trump. This scenario would give one vote to each state, and since the Republicans have more states with Republican majorities, President Trump would likely be the winner. There's even a scenario in which the Speaker of the House, currently uh, Democrat Nancy Pelosi, could become acting president. So Andrea Wilberg says, look, Sir Austin Chamberlain, speaking in Birmingham, gave voice to an apparently non-existent old Chinese curse. Chinese or not, it seems uh, pertinent to the election we're facing. May you live in interesting times. And she says, let us hope the entire weight of the curse falls on the cheaters rather than on the cheated. Now, look, I'm not holding out hope that, uh, boy, by some miracle, this is going to be reversed and, you know, it's, we're going to see this, this miraculous outcome. And, and, and here's why. It's, it's not that uh, I, I don't want to see Biden seated as president, but frankly, I, I, don't, I don't need to see Trump seated as president either. And this is just me. You, you may have some strong feelings about this, but I am doing everything in my, in my power to make politics as irrelevant as possible. And what that means is the, the, the urgency with which this, uh, this electoral race has been followed and with which this process has played out and all the drama has, has unfolded before us, it's only as powerful in my life as I give it power. Does that make sense? I, if I focus on it, if I make this the main focus, oh, what's going on today? Oh, oh, Got to check my news feed. Yeah, I can see why people are going to be really wound up and angry and anxious and depressed, you know, if, if their candidate didn't get, you know, the nod. As it is, it's more of a curiosity. And I have to say, the fact that I'm not hearing anything from, uh, from the mass media, not that I'm consuming mass quantities of mass media, but they seem strangely quiet. I can't find a whole lot on what happened with America's electors, those dual slates that were elected. You know, maybe it amounts to nothing. 
If it does, that's okay. As, as I've stated before, I'm not going to change how I live my life. Not a bit. I'm still going to pursue the things that I want to pursue. I'm going to speak the message that I believe I'm supposed to be speaking right now. I'm not going to beg for permission from a politician. Please, sir, may I exercise my freedoms? Because I don't need their their permission. I'm a free man. I'm going to act like a free man. With respect to the rights of others around me. See, I won't be infringing on them. Or otherwise trying to coerce them. You have to do this. And all I ask in return is leave me alone and let me choose likewise. Let me let me pursue my own happiness. And for those who don't, well, they will find out what resistance is, won't they? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, we are back. I'm not going to have time to share the entirety of uh, this, this essay that I have posted in the show notes from Richard M. Ebling. But he talks about uh, the misguided and sore losers. And it's not the people that you think. Uh, you know, it's not the Trumpers. It's not the people who, who, for whatever reason, didn't get their way because of the election. He says it's the opponents of, of liberty who remain misguided and sore losers. And, and in particular, he takes uh, to task a professor, uh, what's his name? Professor Stiglitz, Joseph Stiglitz. Now, he doesn't deny here, in this article, uh, Richard Ebling talks about how presidential election outcomes do increasingly matter to voters, especially looking back at the 2004, 2008, and 2012 presidential elections. But isn't it interesting that, that some people believe that democracy itself is under attack in America? And by democracy, I'm, I'm talking about pure democracy. This is something that, uh, that Richard Ebling goes into and explains. Look, when we use the word democracy, let's make sure we all understand what that really means. He says, well, the uh, Florida hanging chads of 2000 and the Supreme Court's decision to find in favor of George W. Bush over Al Gore made the legitimacy of that election's outcome suspect for many Democrats. Nothing compares to 2016 and 2020. For the last four years, a good part of the anger and disregard for Donald Trump as president has been due not just to his personality and policies, but the fact that many of those in the Democratic Party and on the left in general were sure the Russians had interfered and somehow rigged the outcome for Trump's victory. Otherwise, how could you explain him winning? And Ebling asks, were there really that many deplorables in America? Besides, Hillary Clinton won three million more of the popular votes than Trump in 2016. So if not for that undemocratic electoral college, the real winner would have been in the White House. Now, he says there can be little doubt that if the November 3rd, 2020 presidential election outcome had been, again, a Trump victory due to the electoral college in the face of a popular majority vote for Biden, there would have been many violent and destructive demonstrations and riots across the United States. As it is, Biden received 81.2 million votes, with Trump getting 74.2 million, or a bit more than 52% of the popular vote to Trump's 48%. Both were historically the highest numbers for any Democrat or Republican running for the presidency. And in the Electoral College, Biden won 306 to 232. 
Now, of course, the shoe is on the other foot with Trump and many Republicans insisting voter fraud with so many, especially with so many write-in ballots and believed irregularities in this season of the coronavirus that's illegitimately given Joe Biden the White House. But Ebling says in spite of Biden's clear win over Trump in both the popular vote and the Electoral College, he says some progressives still remain sore and poor losers. Winners, rather. Sorry. (laughs) A perfect example is economist and Nobel laureate Joseph Stiglitz, a professor at Columbia University, in a recent opinion piece on a chance to repair the cracks in our democracy, which was published in the New York Times back on December 8th. Stiglitz insists that it's not enough that Donald Trump refuses to accept his defeat and gracefully accept Biden as his, success, as his successor. It's that others in the Republican Party declare that in terms of political values, quote, democracy isn't the objective. Liberty, peace, and prosperity are. We want the human condition to flourish, and rank democracy can thwart that, end quote. Now, you may, rec- you may recognize that uh, that quote was Utah Senator Mike Lee, while he was watching the vice presidential debate in October between Mike Pence and Kamala Harris. Senator Lee also tweeted, Government is the official use of coercive force, nothing more, nothing less. The Constitution protects us by limiting the use of government force. So here's where the sore winner comes in. This shocks Professor Stiglitz to no end. The idea that something is of greater political value than democracy itself convinces him that the foundations of America are being threatened. Said Stiglitz, if people like Senator Lee have their way and we turn our backs on democracy, then our lives and our conception of the United States as a bastion of popular representation and respect for human rights will change forever. But but Richard Ebling says if democracy is not politically an end in itself, not the defining institutional characteristic of a free society, then in Stiglitz's view, there is in the air, quote, the sour odor of Hitler's brown shirts. In addition, in his eyes, the failure of achieving the social and the social rather and economic policy goals that he desires due to resistance and opposition in the congressional process means transforming a virtuous system of checks and balances into one of gridlock and confrontation. In other words, the system is a failure if he doesn't get his policy way. Why? Because the use of gridlock by those who hold policy views differing from his implies an unwillingness to confront head-on our our intertwined racial, ethnic, and economic inequalities. Stiglitz insists that a majority of Americans have expressed their belief in universal access to health care, better access to education, higher minimum wages, tighter gun controls, and so on. To oppose an implementation and imposition of such policies on everyone in the country demonstrates a willingness to resort to a variety of anti-democratic policies. That sounds about right. You won't give me what I want. You are anti-democratic. Now he goes on to highlight Stiglitz's views on court packing, uh, press freedom, and states' rights as well. How the Constitution has uh, well served Trump's opposition, actually. And praising democracy so long as it's policies you desire. But I want to cut to to really what to, what... This is where Ebling just shines. And it's, it's a pretty lengthy essay. Totally worth your time, though. You're going to learn some stuff here. Because he talks about the American principle of individual liberty and self-ownership. You know what that means? In, in plain and simple terms, that means your inalienable rights are not subject to a majority vote. If a majority of the American people want everyone to wear, you know, a pink hat, they can cast their vote, but they have absolutely no right to use government force to make people wear a hat or a mask. Sorry. <laughs> 
Just had to throw that in there. Ebling has, uh, has this final word here. He says, be assured that when interventionist welfare state policies are intensified and made more intrusive into the social and economic fabric of American society, and when over time it brings about more corruption, privilege, stagnation, and social hostility, the Joseph Stiglitzes of the world likely will not admit that the cause has been the political paternalism and social engineering for which they so much never stop yearning. No, he says, they will once again insist it's all due to the free market capitalist system that their own policies have continued to undermine, subvert, and indeed to have eliminated at the end of the day. Because the last thing they can admit is that they are anti-freedom and real anti-democratic forces that will leave America far worse. It's a marvelous essay, and I hope you'll take the time to read it, and once you've read it, maybe even share with friends. All right, moving on. I want to talk about some of the, the COVID fallout here, since uh, it appears that uh, there's still a lot of craziness going on. By the way, I have to tell you, I'm, I'm talking to more and more people who are, you know, finding that within their inner circle, there are a lot of folks who now are being diagnosed with COVID, like legitimately getting it and getting sick. Now, interestingly enough, most seem to be weathering it quite well. Once in a while, you'll find an outlier. Well, this person, she's having trouble breathing. But for the most part, people get it. They get the body aches. They get the fever, loss of smell or taste, as, as was to be expected. Here's something I want you to ponder. Does the fact that they're catching this represent a failure on their part or on the part of others not doing their part to, to slow the spread of the disease? I don't think it does. And I'm not trying to sound callous when I say this, but it's a virus. And what viruses do is they work their way through society. And I don't care how careful you are. The chances are at some point you're going to be exposed. This is true for every single one of us. So rather than looking about and trying to cast blame and say, well, you know, it's, it's the fault of those people who don't wear their masks or they, they let it slip down over their nose. I mean, some people are obsessed with this. I, I don't know, you know, I mean, if they, could, if they could put that outrage to some productive use, the world might be a much better place. But no, they want to obsess over, I saw somebody with their mask not over their nose, and man, they'll sit there and stew on it for days. Look, you're going to be exposed. You're likely going to get coronavirus. Whether you get sick or not, well, that's kind of a roll of the dice. If you do, please, don't be too scared. There is, after all, about a, depending on your age, about a 99.5% chance that uh, you're going to survive. Now, if you're over 80 and you have multiple uh, comorbidities, yeah, that uh, that shifts the odds uh, against you somewhat. But if you're 80 or over 80 and have comorbidities, you've already beaten the odds because you've outlived the, uh, you know, average lifespan by a pretty good margin. So stop complaining. Cut some slack. Don't look at the people who have been diagnosed with, uh, with COVID as some kind of lepers or people that otherwise need to be shunned. They're not. This is what viruses do. They move through the population, and, and frankly, the sooner it moves through the population, the quicker we will approach herd immunity. Okay, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about resistance and a rescue from the madness. Who's going to save us? Well, I think we're going to have to save ourselves. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. You know, I have to apologize. I am just off today. And I don't know what it is. Lack of sleep. The fact that I took Benadryl last night, which always kind of makes me... It makes me sleep. And I slept fairly hard, but I woke up with, you know, kind of the equivalent of a Benadryl hangover. I'm just... I feel stumbly today, and so I apologize if I'm not uh, if I'm not sharing encouragement and enlightenment and uh, and thoughtful, you know, commentary in my usual crisp, upbeat fashion. Thanks for bearing with me. I swing for the fences every day, but this is one of those days I don't really feel like I'm hitting it out of the park. So I apologize. I'm really I'm not trying to phone it in, but um, I seem I feel like I'm about a half step off today. All right, but I'm going to plug on here. Whew. Onward and upward. Found a great article in my email, my email inbox. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. Again, I would encourage you, visit their website, sign up for their daily emails. You'll get a lot of great articles every single day. This one is from Joaquin Book, and it's called The Rescue from Madness, which I think would probably be an appropriate thing to be thinking about in our day. And he points out how in his memoirs, written in the 1940s but not published until after his death, the great economist Ludwig von Mises wrote, I set out to be a reformer, but only became the history, or sorry, the historian of the decline. And Joaquin Book says most people contemplating the political and economic climate of 2020 can probably relate to that. He says many of us frustrated at the loss of liberty and overreached by governments in the single-minded battle to eradicate a virus they don't understand have reached for George Orwell or Aldous Huxley. In their novels, 1984 and Brave New World, they explored incredibly dystopian worlds. Real-world events that resemble anything in those books invite the fear that we're destined for the same tyrannical lives. Now, while literature captures something deeply real about what it means to be human, particularly during the first half of the despicable 20th century in which these authors lived, they ultimately depict something unreal. The superstate of 1984's Oceania hasn't quite emerged anywhere, except in perhaps North Korea. The foolish quest for unstructured and uninhibited pleasure in the world state has so far restricted itself to communes and sections of woke, commu- woke university campuses. Instead, he says, I find Mises or his contemporary, the novelist and poet Stefan Zwig, much more revealing. Both came of age in Austria with its coffee houses, intellectual advances, Uh, literary achievements, famed circles, and the aura for learning for learning's sake that posterity has envied. Both witnessed the prolonged and enduring collapse of their civilizations. In contrast to Orwell and Huxley's unreal worlds, the demise that Mises and Zwig discuss actually happened, in fact, just a few generations ago. In our times, in our worlds, with roughly our civic institutions and social structures and values. Now, this is a little bit... uh, This is some tough love he shares here, but he says we are watching in real time the destruction of our own civilization. In the history books, events like this seem so quick and inevitable, following one upon the other until rescue from madness is too late. With the benefit of hindsight that plagues most history, this makes caricatures of the past. Really, even even ask precocious middle schoolers. Couldn't the secessionists or the Democrats or the nationalists or the Bolsheviks have anticipated what their inane beliefs and actions would do? 
Yes, they could, but they disregarded them as unrealistic, low-probability outcomes that we didn't have to care about right now. Look at all the beautiful things we're trying to achieve. And when the disasters that these movements had unleashed upon civilization were more clearly visible, well, it was too late to roll them back. Starting in the 2010s and rushing to the forefront in that god-awful year of 2020, we have been chipping away at the base that made the West great. Individualism, restrained state power, competing scientific advances under a shared commitment to truth, objective, verifiable, provable truth. In the 2010s, with the intellectual bastion of universities and mainstream media as the center of power, we demolished truth. Per critical theory, nothing is and anything goes, narratives dominate statistical facts, and cherry-picked events are enough to advance conspiratorial beliefs about structural harm. We have grievance studies and wishy-washy words of oppression. Logic is white supremacy. Competence hierarchies and meritocracy are nefariously designed to harm those left behind. All is power struggles. Joaquin Book says with governments around the world, uh, the COVID world, suspending everything that people value, we suddenly warped society. Truth speakers are only listened to if they are politically expedient. Individualism has been effectively de-anonymized by the mandated use of masks. There's something overwhelmingly sinister by measures that inhibit person-to-person communication and aggregation, the very features which the state most fears. We impaired the workings of a free society voluntarily for a promise that someone somewhere might not catch the flu. We directed attention, suspicion, and later blame to those among us, friend or foe, who got infected instead of the governments from whence the power grab stemmed. Somehow, he says, we jumped from an an enlightenment and scientific method-based understanding of the world to suddenly blaming whoever tests positive for their flaws. If anyone gets infected or the overall infection rates rise, being the docile sheep we are and having the hysterical media outlets we have, we conclude that people must have flaunted the rules. Better take precaution. Take better precautions, you irresponsible virus spreader. Instead of asking whether the rules even work, we ask what moral flaws fueled the guilty. I love this. He says, the Salem witch trials called. They want their rationality back. Bing! <laughs> that one stung. Julia Marcus, the Harvard Medical School professor who's on record for calling many political actions pandemic theater, recently wrote in The Atlantic, As cases surged in the fall, elected officials blamed the trend on misbehavior at private social gatherings. Restaurants, stores, and other workplaces aren't the problem. The talking point goes, people just need to behave better everywhere else, in parks, playgrounds, in their own homes. Instead, we must consider the possibility that when huge numbers of people indicate through their actions that seeing loved ones in person is non-negotiable, they need practical ways to reduce risk that go beyond just say no. Joaquin Book says, take the pandemic clown at the Department of Justice's press briefing, viewed by millions online. First, he walks by staff without wearing a mask. Then... He takes one out of his pocket, mishandles it, and repeatedly touches his face before he walks the few steps to the DOJ podium where he takes it off. Whatever the scientific assessment on the effectiveness of masks in preventing the disease to spread, the hypocrisy and make-believe doesn't get clearer than this. He says that segment indicates to us what we already knew about our house of cards like governments. They play charades and make nonsensical rules for us, their subjects, before they themselves routinely flaunt them. Ferguson and Cummings in the UK, Cuomo and Newsom in the US, 
In memoirs, Mises wrote, I recognized the corruption that is an inevitable concomitant of government interventionism. Decades later, we can sympathize. Forty years before Robert Higgs explored the ratchet effect, governments grabbing power in the name of some emergency but never returning all of it when the threat of doom has passed, Zwig wrote of the civilization that tyrannical governments in the Great Wars had destroyed. Apart from the grand technical advances between the the two total wars that plagued us from 1914 to 1945, Zwig wrote in The World of Yesterday, Memoirs of a European, that there is not a single nation in our small world of the West that has not lost immeasurably much of its joie de vivre and its carefree existence. Joaquin Book says, expect the same of today's bloated government. Filled with delusions of grandeur, always shoving down one-size-fits-all solutions to its underlings, Every step along the way, they overthrow the fundamental liberty and live and let live conviction that makes civilized life bearable. Now, he does say the only good news in all this madness is that large swathes of the public are slowly starting to ignore their overlords. From this, the cynic assumes that it's useless and tyrants will win anyway. The optimists say that they will bravely fight until their dying breath. And both find support in Mises' memoirs. Reflecting on his time in Austrian policymaking, Mises wrote, I fought a battle in the Austrian Chamber of Commerce for 16 years in which I achieved nothing more than postponement of catastrophe. I made weighty personal sacrifices, even though I always foresaw that I would be denied success. But I do not regret having attempted the impossible. I could not act otherwise. I fought because there was nothing else I could do. End quote. Is that not a marvelous quote? And Joaquin Book says, look, you have a similar choice. Welcome to our brave new world. I think much of the fighting that we're facing is going to be figurative rather than literal. It's going to take place in the arena of ideas rather than out on the battlefield. But if you feel that you have to stand up that your voice has to be put up in support of the truth, of the principles, of freedom, of what, whatever it is that is most precious. I'm urging you, I'm begging you, answer the call. Yes, it's scary. That's how you know you're on the right path. If it's not scaring you, you need to adjust course. <laughs> but you're doing the right thing. And most importantly, you are not alone. This is The Brian Hyde Show.